This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number three, recorded on March 7th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-hosts, Maureen O'Brien, Lars Wagner, and Raj Nagarajan, all from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today on Twipple, we'll be discussing the pharmacogenetics of vincristine in the context of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but it'll be applicable, probably, to many other types of diseases for which we use vincristine. We'll also be discussing a new regimen of berinotecan and temozolomide tested by the Children's Oncology Group for advanced or relapsed neuroblastoma, in part conducted by our own Lars Wagner. We will try in future episodes to address your questions or comments, so please send all emails to twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Well, let's begin with Maureen O'Brien discussing our first manuscript. Maureen? This article uh, is entitled Increased Risk of Vincristine Neurotoxicity Associated with Low CYP3A5 Expression Genotype in Children with Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia and was published uh, very recently in the journal Pediatric Blood and Cancer. And the uh, first author is Dr. Egbalakin. And this is an interesting paper in that it addresses a drug that is used very commonly in the treatment of not only ALL in children, but many other solid tumors, including rhabdomyosarcoma, Wilms tumor, and others. And in fact, as the authors note in their introduction, over half of children with cancer who receive chemotherapy will have a regimen that includes vincristine. So this is very relevant not only to pediatric cancers, but also to um, adults as well. And they're trying to address the issue that we have some of these drugs that we've been using for many, many, many years to treat children. And while we are also look, while we are looking for novel therapies, it, we still need to be thinking about how we're using some of these older drugs and could we be doing it better? And could we be dosing it more appropriately um, for certain children? Right now we pretty much use body surface area and then we cap the dose of, of vincristine at 2 milligrams. But beyond that, optimal dosing in terms of pharmacokinetics, in terms of the genes that metabolize vincristine, how to use it better to have better cure rates and less toxicity um, is an area of investigation, and that's what they chose to study here. So it strikes me that most of the progress that's been made in the previous couple decades with childhood cancer that we talked about in our first episode was due or with drugs that had been around for a long time, but we've just figured out over the years how to better use them empirically just by trying different doses or, or regimens. And this seems like it's part of the new era that we're entering where we're looking at genetics and other specific molecular markers about how patients handle these drugs, and maybe this will be the one of the next ways we can make advances for the future. Is that, do you agree with I that? I agree, and the authors make that point in their discussion that, you know, currently in 
ALL in children in one of the relapsed studies, one of the questions was, can you intensify the dose of vincristine and improve outcomes? And that was just a randomization. Nothing was known about age, gender, anything about the genes that metabolize it, and patients were just randomized. And that study, unfortunately, found that the higher dose overall wasn't tolerable, but it may be that if you need to pick it for a certain population of patients that are metabolizing it differently, that that gives you um, a different way to approach dosing. So that's what they sought to try to look at here, and they've done a lot of interesting background kind of leading up to it, which I'll just summarize a little bit so everyone starts from the same page. So it's been documented that there is a lot of difference in between patients in how they metabolize vincristine. Um, with one pediatric study showing 19-fold variability in the area under the curve, so the total exposure when multiple levels were checked, although that did not correlate with neurotoxicity. So just giving the dose and having it metabolized didn't give all the answers to why some kids had peripheral neuropathy, which is one of the major side effects, and others did not. So they've done some background work showing that um, vincristine is metabolized by a particular family of enzymes, the CYP3A family, um, and the CYP3A5 enzyme is the one implicated most for vincristine metabolism. And they found that there are different alleles, different um, uh, gene products that different patients can have, and that certain of those cause you to metabolize vincristine rapidly, and others cause you to not metabolize vincristine. So you would assume that then patients who have low metabolizing genes would have higher vincristine levels and therefore perhaps increase side effects from the same dose of vincristine as a person who metabolized it extensively. Or perhaps increased efficacy on the tumor. Exactly, and that's a point that we'll get back to at the end because while some of this is very interesting, it makes it hard to know how to use the information um, they were approaching this mainly from the toxicity standpoint. And they do make the notation that it has been previously described that um, racial and ethnic background does play a role in risk of increasing neurotoxicity with patients of Caucasian backgrounds being at much higher risk for having symptomatic neurotoxicity than patients who are African-American. Not much known about other ethnic groups, but that has been reported. And these authors in their prior work have demonstrated that 70% of African-Americans have at least one CYP3A5 number one allele, which um, causes expression of a very active enzyme that metabolizes in Christine well, as opposed to Caucasians, which have common allelic variants that they refer to in here as number three, number six, and number seven, which result in the expression of little to no active enzyme. So they um, postulate that there's a correlation between which genotype you have, if you have the number one allele versus one of the others, and what your both metabolism of vincristine is going to be, and then what your risk of neurotoxicity. So that was their hypothesis going into this study, that they were going to take a group of children with B-precursor lymphoblastic leukemia, who were treated on a variety of children's oncology group and prior studies, um, where vincristine is used very extensively, weekly during induction, and then every you know, two to four weeks in subsequent blocks through the rest of treatment. So a good population in which to look at this, to look at their genotype for this particular CYP3A5, and then to look at their vincristine-induced peripheral neuropathy symptoms and see if there's been a correlation. So, yes, Raj. Um, is, there, um, is it known what the frequency is of these genes, uh, genotypes, in Caucasians or African-American populations? Um, 
They did not report that in this article other than the fact that most African Americans have a high metabolizing allele, and that's less common in the Caucasian population, but they did not report, say, the Hardy-Weinberg frequencies of different SNPs in the population. Um, so going forward, they had 107 patients who had completed at least one year of ALL therapy that they included in the analysis, and the Vincristine dose was standard, which is our usual 1.5 milligrams per meter square with a maximum dose of 2, but the intervals at which it was given varied depending on the protocol. Um, the interesting thing um, that in, in their group of patients as they started out trying to look at this question, at first I thought they were going to be able to address some of the racial issues and correlate genotype with that, but because of the demographics of where they are located at Indiana University, their population of patients was actually 105 Caucasians, of which six were Hispanic or Latino, one African American and patient, and one Asian. So while they were able to look at genotype, um, they weren't able to extrapolate that to uh, look back at the how that correlated with um, ethnic background. Um, Sounds like that could be a follow-up study with exactly, collaboration. With a bigger others. population yeah. and looking at this. Um, the second part, just to kind of put this out there, because I think this is important in analyzing this, the results of this study, is that this was been retrospectively. They um, reviewed the medical records of patients who had been treated and used that to determine what their neurotoxicity was based on what had been written in the notes when they had been seen for routine follow-ups. This was not a prospective or um, organized evaluation of what their neuropathy symptoms were. So if it was mentioned in the note, it was then graded via the National Cancer Institute Common Terminology Criteria for Adverse Events, version 3, um, and that was how they have a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 being lowest toxicity and 5 being the highest. And they tried to look both monthly and then cumulatively over the first year. A um, couple other things to add. They did their genotyping by looking for the CYP3A5, 3, 6, and 7 alleles, and then they assumed that if you didn't have one of those, then you must have the number 1 genotype, which is the high metabolized. They did not actually do RT-PCR for that, and I'm going to have to assume that those are the only four alleles, and that's why, but it did sort of pique my interest. And lastly, they do do a pharmacokinetic analysis, but the challenge of this is that um, they did measure vincristine and its primary metabolite, which they call M1, um, in patients one hour after the administration of a vincristine dose. So that's the only time point they have, and they have to make some inferences based on that level, um, which are clearly limited but interesting. So I guess there's one part of the methods I don't quite understand. If they were looking at a patient population retrospectively, but then they're giving them a dose and measuring the metabolites, uh, if patients had vincristine toxicity, you probably wouldn't be giving them a dose again. That's a good point. And I don't know if this was part of a bigger study in which they were drawing levels of other, you know, various drugs in terms of PKs, um, but it is potentially an issue that you may be weeding out patients that have their doses dropped or otherwise. And they only had PK on 74 of the 107 patients, but that's still a significant proportion. So it is interesting that they had to look at vincristine neuropathy retrospectively from the medical records, but were actually capturing a PK level one hour after the dose. So um, I guess we can invite any of the authors, if they listen to this episode ever in the future, to write in and clarify or call us and we can chat. Yes. So um, in terms of the results, which we'll run through 
kind of quickly here because they kind of all come back to the same point. So 88 of their patients were CYP3A5 non-expressors, meaning they had one of the alleles, not surprisingly associated with being Caucasian, which was most of their population. But they did have 19 patients who had the number one um, allele who were considered to be higher expressors. And in a whole variety of measurements, all in the univariate analysis, they found many, many statistically significant associations, including maximum grade of neurotoxicity, um, average number of months during the first year of therapy spent with neurotoxicity. Um, the things that I thought were most interesting looking at these numbers were number of patients with grade 3 or 4 neuropathies, so patients in whom that's associated with significant functional impairment of activities of daily living. Grade 4 is considered disabling, um, meaning inability to walk in um, the CTs, this uh, criteria. So that would be the kids who are most significantly affected because I think all of us would agree a lot of patients have grade one and two in Christine-related neuropathy with some minor foot drop or minor sensory changes that don't require intervention. Um, and with that group, um, it was pretty even. There was not a statistically significant difference, although the um, frequency of having higher grade neuropathy was higher in the non-expressors. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, though, is even though the group that were non-expressors did have um, a higher number, a higher maximum grade of neurotoxicity, it was 2 versus 1.4. And that's statistically significant by their measurement, but having grade 2 neuropathy is still fairly mild symptoms. So I think trying to translate that into what are the patients experiencing and how can you use this, I always have to think back to the fact that something statistically significant may not be clinically as relevant. Um, oh, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. So trying to interpret some of this. I think one thing that did stand out to me, though, is average number of doses reduced due to vincristine neurotoxicity and average number of doses missed. And those were both um, significantly higher, not a huge number, but higher in the group that were non-expressors of the enzyme. And I think that's most concerning because as most of us practice, particularly with Christine-related neuropathy, which is generally thought to be mainly reversible once the drug is stopped and you're off therapy, I think most of us are very loath to omit or decrease the dose unless the person is very functionally limited. So I think that within this study is a measurement that really shows that there is a difference because that identifies a group where the physician felt compelled to alter their therapy of Christine based on their symptoms, which I, I found to be an infrequent thing. Um, so moving on from that, they looked, then looked at some pharmacokinetic analysis and this is limited by the fact that they're basically measuring the metabolite of incristine that occurs within an hour of giving the dose. And they did find that for patients who have the um, number one allele or who are expressors, they accumulate the M1 metabolite much more rapidly than those who don't, which is not that surprising. They're metabolizing vincristine, and so they're getting metabolites sooner than patients who don't have that um, genotype. That being said, the vincristine levels at an hour for, both, for all the patients were similar, which is probably not that surprising because you've just given the dose and it hasn't been metabolized. Um, was there any consideration for haplotype versus... You know, if you have one of the alleles or both of them being 
No, in their background they had commented that just having one allele of number one is sufficient to have activity of the enzyme uh, versus not so having that's a any. dominant so effect. It, yeah, so it's pretty much either you have at least one copy of allele number one or you have none of it, and those are sort of the two differences. And then in their last figure, they looked at the concentration of the metabolite versus the grade of neurotoxicity and did find a correlation with um, increased uh, with decreased M1, meaning they weren't metabolizing the vincristine as fast to the M1 metabolite, meaning the vincristine was hanging around longer in those patients, and there was a trend towards an association with increased neurotoxicity. So overall, those were the results, which were confirming their hypothesis that this genotyping of this gene does give some correlation to predicting patients that are going to have more significant neurotoxicity. Um, for me, I think one of the take-home messages was, so what do we do with that information? How would you actually apply that in the clinical context? And I think Tim has already brought up an important issue, which is, one, validating this in a bigger, more diverse cohort is the first. Second, I think, is looking at it prospectively and having a clear um, measurement of neurotoxicity that everybody agrees upon, where we look, the patient comes in and not knowing anything about them, we put everyone through the same grading because I think that things like neurotoxicity can be very subjective and also um, not well documented. And I can certainly say, having seen patients, how well I've documented if they have a little bit of, you know, tingling of their toes or something, I may not have put it in the notes. So going back and doing that retrospectively is somewhat difficult and really teasing it out and also teasing out the ones that really matter. I think usually retrospective studies then give justification to provide a more controlled prospective study to get better definitive results, so maybe that'll be the case with this study. So it's not ready for prime time yet in terms no, of selecting patients to get different doses. I don't think so, and I think it's, it's certainly going down that path and the way we want to be thinking about um, how to use these drugs. And in a later podcast, we can talk a little bit about 6-mercaptopurine and the gene TPMT, which has clearly come into prime time now in terms of using that for dose adjustments, which we're going to be doing in the upcoming Front Risk ALL study. Um, but I think for this, one of the th other things that you have to be concerned about is um, if you're making dose reductions in anticipation of a toxicity that is reversible, are you sacrificing efficacy? As you brought up at the beginning, it may be that the people that don't clear their vincristine as well actually have better outcomes. And so weighing the pros and cons of making a decision about a drug in anticipation of a toxicity just based on a genotype, you don't want to sacrifice cure rates, especially when it's a toxicity that could be potentially reversible. And the other thing that's important here, I think you mentioned, is that they didn't, or their previous data didn't necessarily show that the drug levels correlate with toxicity. So it's almost like clinical titration of the drug, i.e., you know, reducing the dose or holding the dose based on clinical symptoms. At this point in time, is still better than genotyping and and dose adjusting based on genotype. I I agree, and I think a lot of the studies are showing that it's not only. Um, the, how high each dose is, and, but if you miss subsequent doses because of a toxicity, your overall dose intensity goes down. And so making those decisions in absence of a clinical symptom that would really make you need to hold the dose, you'd have to have a, a lot of data to support doing that. But I think the other thing that will also help us is not only in the next ALL study are they looking at 6MP in particular with metabolites, but 
um, hopefully there's going to be built into it a neurotoxicity scale that's going to be prospectively done to look at both quality of life and neurotoxicity and really get good baseline rates and have a reproducible instrument that you could actually use in future studies. And the other uh, issue here is that, again, this isn't the whole story of toxicity. For example, I know there's a fair amount of literature about different neurological uh, predispositions to toxicity. So Charcot-Marie tooth disease patients, um, there's a lot of different genotypes there mm-hmm. of that disease, and you give them a dose of incristine, and, and they can really have severe effects. And that tends to be a problem in pediatrics because many patients aren't diagnosed until they're later in life, and but they would have that susceptibility gene already there. Um, so and the authors here really, they, they include that in their discussion. They clearly recognized the limitations, and they excluded patients who had known neuropathies before they came on, you know, before diagnosed. But as you said, things like that can be subclinical. So they're also going forward now looking at other genes which may be involved. So this is not the only gene, and then it ends up being multifactorial. So um, it's a, a small step on the road to actually achieving what we would like to have as personalized medicine, where we can look at your genes and look at the disease and give the appropriate doses of the drugs. But I think it highlights a lot of the challenges in translating that to the care of patients. It's great, Maureen. Thank you for um, do you have Question. Yeah, Bernie, you mentioned that all of these were univariate analyses. Um, yes. Are there other identified factors that um, could be predictive of neuropathy, like age or sex? So age is a very important one, and um, interestingly, on the recent intermediate risk ALL study through the Children's Oncology Group, which was looking at Christian intensification, the intensified arm had to be closed early for the children that were, I believe, over 11 or 12 years of age because they had a much more significant risk. And I think it's known that in adults, in Christine neuropathy and trying to deliver the same dose intensity that we can do to children's is extremely difficult. So that was not controlled for in this study, and it's sort of another important thing to think of. I'm not sure about gender. I don't know if anybody else um, knows many data. But certainly age is a big one. And I think one of the other challenges, too, is especially when you're trying to grade things like leg pain and neuropathy in ALL patients who are receiving a lot of steroids and have a lot of other reasons to have those symptoms, really teasing out what's neuropathy and what's not is extremely challenging. So great great discussion about a really important topic that I think will play a big role as we move forward in in cancer care. Uh, We're more than 20 minutes into our podcast, so... Since we're trying to shoot for 15 to 20 minutes, you're going to have to um, (laughs) be awfully fast, Lars. So our next uh, topic is a phase two trial that uh, Dr. Wagner conducted, so I'll let him talk about it. So this is a report from the Children's Oncology Group. Uh, It's recently published in Journal of Clinical Oncology with Roe Bagatelle being the lead author, and it's a phase two study of the combination of arenatecan and temozolomide for patients with relapsed or refractory neuroblastoma. So there's lots of good reasons to consider uh, studying these two drugs. There's some encouraging preclinical data showing schedule-dependent synergy of non-overlapping toxicity profiles. It's a pretty well-tolerated outpatient 
patient uh, regimen that's attractive for many patients. And then, um, importantly, responses have been seen in patients with bulky um, neuroblastoma treated on the initial phase one uh, trial, as well as um, a study by uh, the NANT, or New Approaches Neuroblastoma Therapy Consortium, um, which used oral ranitecan and temozolomide. So it's a big uh, study uh, for neuroblastoma, at least uh, in terms of numbers. They had um, 25 patients um, in one of two groups, so they used a biologic stratification to put patients into um, two different cohorts. The first are patients with bulky disease or that have measurable um, soft tissue disease. The second uh, group has um, only a valuable disease. So these are patients with, for example, bone scan abnormalities, MIBG abnormalities, or marrow abnormalities. Um, and that type of strategy has been done previously on uh, neuroblastoma um, relapse studies. So on this uh, trial, um, 73% of, the, of all patients um, had the first recurrence of their disease, while 27% um, were refractory to induction chemotherapy, which is an extraordinarily high-risk uh, population. And 40% of these patients had already been treated with cyclophosphamide and topotecan. Um, so the therapy that they got, uh, kids got uh, five days of temozolomide using the 100 milligrams per meter squared per day. And then intravenous arenatecan was used at a dose of 10 milligrams per meter squared per day for five days for two consecutive weeks, or the so-called daily times five times two schedule. And those doses have been previously established in a phase one trial as being pretty tolerable. And the, the investigators re uh, assessed response after three and after six courses, and then patients went off study after that. Um, so the results um, showed that for the, the cohort of patients with bulky disease, three of the first 25 patients um, had uh, complete or partial responses, giving a response rate of 11%. Um, in the patients with only a valuable disease, um, the response rate was slightly higher as anticipated. So five of the first 25 patients uh, had responses, giving a response rate of 20%. If you take all... Um, patients and pool them together, the overall re uh, response rate for the combination was 15%. And that kind of fell short of what uh, we're hoping to see, which was a response rate um, uh, similar to cyclophosphamide and topotecan, which up until now has been the standard um, first-line salvage therapy for uh, neuroblastoma. And the response rate on a previous CHG study was 32% for patients in first um, relapse or with refractory disease. So while it fell short of uh, that um, anticipated or expected goal, um, there are still some benefits and some important um, uh, uh, discoveries from this trial that I think um, could affect the care for neuroblastoma patients. Um, we, uh, we note that in both cohorts, over half the patients had stable disease throughout the six-course uh, observation period. And so if you... Um, look at things like clinical benefit, which is objective response rate plus stable disease. Roughly two out of three patients in either group um, had clinical benefit for a meaningful period of time. And while that's not as, um, uh, as great of a benefit as we would hope to see, it's still a clear and measurable benefit um, that can be important to these patients, especially considering that these um, kids were getting generally well-tolerated in outpatient uh, therapy, hopefully with a good quality of life during that that time period. 
I think um, the big question is, well, where do you go with this? Um, and, I, and I think um, there are two potential directions that this drug combination could have for um, neuroblastoma patients. First, um, as it was used here, is salvage therapy. Uh, so while cyclotopotecan has been the number one salvage regimen, um, uh, that is probably going to change now that cyclophosphamide and topotecan are being incorporated uh, in the um, new upfront um, newly diagnosed study for um, uh, high-risk neuroblastoma. So I think uh, parents and physicians are going to be less likely or less enthusiastic about going back to cyclotopo at the time of first recurrence if they've already seen it during induction therapy. So we need some strategy uh, for these patients, and this is a reasonable strategy that's well-tolerated and um, has now been demonstrated in several studies to have some level of, of activity or clinical benefit. I think probably an even more important um, application is that the regimen is really well tolerated and could um, be used as a therapeutic backbone on which to add targeted agents. And there's a, um, a whole variety of different targeted agents um, that you could kind of tack onto this with the hope of improving the, the activity that you see. In fact, the Children's Oncology Group is now um, designing a Phase two trial using this as their background or their uh, therapeutic backbone, and then um, adding on targeted agents like an IGF-1R um, uh, inhibitor or um, an anti-angiogenic agent like uh, bevacizumab. And so those are different ways in which um, this uh, regimen could be uh, uh, further used for kids with neuroblastoma. So this population of patients were uh, in first uh Relapse so similar to what the topo cycles correct have been, correct. so you would have expected. Uh, those are comparable groups. They, they sh they're pretty comparable, and we know that your likelihood of getting a response keeps going down the more prior regimens that you've had. So uh, you're right that they're pretty comparable groups. And is there anything that uh, you could ferret out of the data in terms of what, uh, predicting who might respond in this, or the groups are too? The numbers are too small. The, the numbers are too small, and there were not a lot of um, uh, predicted biomarkers that we tried to look at. Unfortunately, for these two drugs, there's not um, a great amount of data in terms of predicting response. Um, in an ongoing institutional study, we're looking at the MGMT status. MGMT is a DNA repair protein, which may be predictive of response, at least to temozolomide. Um, and so we're looking at that um, kind of prospectively in a trial that we're doing uh, at Cincinnati Children's, which uses arena-tecan, timazolamide, um, together with vincristine and a bastin or bevacizumab, again, demonstrating a, a way to kind of use this as a backbone on which to add targeted agents. Well, Erinotecan has uh, some unique um, toxicities. I mean, did that have a big impact on any of these kids? No, in fact, in general, it was, it was quite well tolerated. Um, there's always the potential for diarrhea with uh, the use of Erinotecan. The dose, importantly, was relatively low. Um, we don't know um, great information on how the dose intensity impacts response rates. Um, this is a well tolerated dose, and clearly, activity can be seen. Um, it's complicated by the fact that um, activity or responses can be seen just with single-agent temozolomide. So when a patient responds to the two-drug combination, it's really unclear exactly what they're responding to, one agent um, or the combination 
uh, the agents. But um, the dose was relatively low. Newer studies of temozolomine and retikane will probably incorporate a shorter schedule of the daily times five, um, which has been shown in a randomized trial for patients with recurrent rhabdomyosarcoma um, to have uh, similar activity and similar incidence of grade three and four toxicity. Five days is easier to give than 10 days, and so um, I think a lot of the, the trials using uh, protracted orientation will use the shorter five-day course now. Just in terms of trying to tie it back to the first article we discussed, I know that, is there anything known about the genotypes of that enzyme or anything known about how temozolomide is uh, metabolized that uh, might help us predict? Since you didn't, these, none of these patients, the drug levels were measured, uh, and so um, is there hope that some of this response could be due to differences in metabolism. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Arinotecan is um, uh, metabolized by endogenous uh, carboxyesterases that um, help uh, break it down to SN38, which is the active metabolite that then gets uh, metabolized by the liver. You're right, we didn't look at PK. Previous studies have not, at least in pediatrics, have not suggested necessarily a um, clear um, uh, drug exposure response relationship. Um, there is uh, probably more relationship with toxicity, but not so much uh, necessarily with response. And so there wasn't an extensive PK analysis or any PK analysis done with this study. Um, the prior studies have indicated that neither drug seems to affect the metabolism of the other, um, and that, uh, um, but, but there is some wide interpatient variability. Well, that, that last point is an excellent one in terms of... Uh, the challenge of combining different drugs because not only can they um, do different things and cause different side effects, but they can uh, alter the metabolism of each other and therefore alter the side effect profile when they're used in combination that you might not see uh, when used together. Okay, it looks like that's it for this week. Thank you, Lars, Maureen, and Raj for being here. I know I learned a lot and I hope you guys did too. Again, as a reminder to our listeners, we'd be happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. So if we got something wrong or if you have an answer that we didn't have, please send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.